we are we are working through John's gospel, and right now we are we are in the farewell discourse. It's like chapter 13 to chapter about 18, and this is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, my best guess when we're in chapter 16 this morning that we're getting close to maybe midnight, maybe even later. I say that because in the next chapter, Jesus, he asks his disciples to stay awake, to, to pray for him, and they keep falling asleep. So it seems like they're getting tired, so I'm thinking it's later. Now, some of you would push back and say it sounds more like 8.30 or 9 p.m. That, uh, that it's time for bed, but it seems like maybe it's later. And these are young men, and so, you know, they're maybe staying up, not having God, you know, not needing to go to bed super early, but regardless, whatever the hours are, we are hours from Jesus being arrested. These are the last words that Jesus will have to prepare his disciples for his death. So let's pick up in chapter uh, 16, verse 1. Uh, we left off here last week. We got to actually verse 4, but for context, I want to back up and keep all this chapter together. So chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus is speaking here. So some of you maybe have a red-letter Bible. These are probably in red letters. It says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, 
but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, may we just be in awe from this passage of, of Scripture that that you have overcome the world. And whatever we bring in this morning, whatever we're struggling with, whatever suffering we're facing, you've overcome it all. That you stand victoriously. So Lord, help us this morning just to have a right understanding of who you are, that we have a right understanding of who we are. Lord, may you shape us, may you change us from the inside out. Give us ears to hear from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so far in this upper room discourse, Jesus has spoken often about the Trinity. And here in chapter 16, he speaks again about the works of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And I find it fascinating that disciples, they anticipate that Jesus is about to be betrayed, that that they're on their last evening together, he's leaving. And what does Jesus feel burdened to speak to them about? I mean, once again, he turns his attention to the Trinity. This section is full of Trinitarian language, much like chapter 14. A lot of our pneumatology comes from this chapter. If we're going to understand the Holy Spirit, we have to read chapter 16. Last week, we saw in verses 1 through 4, where Jesus warns the disciples about the people who will fall away. And then in the very next breath, Jesus says something that if anyone other than Jesus would have said it, every single one of us would disagree with. Look down at verse 5. Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, 
Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now listen to this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it is to your advantage that he goes away. For if he doesn't go away, the helper will not come. I mean, could you imagine how challenging and foolish this statement must have been for these disciples? You know, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, Jesus. You're our Messiah. You're our rabbi. You're our Savior. I cannot think of anything worse than you leaving. How can you say it will be to our advantage? I mean, just think about it. How amazing would it be if you woke up every day and as you go out to your car to, to work or school or whatever that day leads you to do, Jesus meets you out front and you just kind of get to kick it with Jesus every day. Just riding along in the car, you probably drive a lot better. You go to work or class, you probably study a little bit better with Jesus there. I mean, that's what's going on here. To have Jesus in the flesh walking around with you during your day, don't you think obviously that would be advantageous to you? But here, Jesus is not just thinking about you, singular. He has a much bigger picture in mind. Jesus came for a purpose. He came to accomplish a mission, a mission that he had been sent on, and a part of that mission was to leave. So he had to leave so that he could accomplish this rescue mission. The way that Jesus words this in verse 7 makes it seem like Jesus and the Holy Spirit cannot both be permanently hanging out in the same place at the same time, much like maybe how the president and vice president you maybe you're not supposed to ride together in the same plane because if they both crash, you lose them both. So, but that's not what's going on here with, when Jesus is saying this. It seems better to understand this phrase as this new working of the Spirit, which cannot begin until Christ completes his work through the death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. So, or another way to say this is the work that Christ began will be completed by the Spirit but only after the work of Christ on earth is first completed. So he says, once I go, once my work is finished, then my spirit can come. So in that sense, it is to our advantage that Jesus leaves because him leaving means he has finished the work that he has been sent to accomplish. Does that make sense? And now on the other side of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Christ can be everywhere by his spirit, and we can actually have more grace and to simply walk physically with him. He can dwell in us. I love how one theologian explains this. He writes, The Holy Spirit does not supply the Son's absence. He completes the Son's presence. The Holy Spirit isn't a replacement for Jesus. He helps make Jesus known among all nations. So don't think of Jesus sending the Spirit as this kind of understudy, like, I'm leaving. I'm going to send you this guy. He'll help you. He is not less than God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. He's divine. He, he demonstrates the power of God. He does God-like things. We even see these same disciples who are hearing this from Jesus. 
they will refer to the Holy Spirit as God. We clearly see this in Acts chapter 5. So not long after Pentecost, the church began to grow. Thousands were coming to know Christ. And this man named Ananias lied about what he had monetarily given to the church. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Peter says this. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but look at this, but to God. Remember back in verse 3, he said, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And now he's saying, You have not lied to men, but to God. So Jesus says, It is to your advantage that he leave so that he can send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can come, who is fully God. Jesus then goes on to list some things that the Holy Spirit will do in your life. Look down at verse 8. When he comes, and I'll remind you, we went over this a few weeks ago, but notice the pronouns here. When he comes, the Holy Spirit's not an it. He's not a thing. Okay, so when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus says that one of the roles that the Holy Spirit plays is to convict the world. The word for convict here, it's interesting. It's the same word that John uses back in chapter 3, verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. That word exposed and the word convict is the same Greek word. So when you think of convict, you can think of the word exposed. Your sins will be exposed, revealed. In fact, what we see here in John 16 is that the Holy Spirit, he's a light. The work of the Holy Spirit is this giant spotlight. First of all, he throws a giant spotlight on you and on me to show us, to expose to us our sin. Those dark places in your heart, that's his role. Then we also see that he shines a giant light onto Jesus so that the whole world can see him. And this is the only place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is said to do the work in the world. Every other time you see the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we see him at work in the hearts of the believers. But here he's at working in the world, convicting sin. So verse 9 shows us why the Holy Spirit must convict the world. Jesus says, because they do not believe in me. Jesus is aware of the lack of faith of many people towards him. All those people you pray for, it's in your life. The Holy Spirit, his role is to convict them of their sin. A healthy church will be a confessing church. One that is marked by conviction of the Holy Spirit. That it's common to hear people confess their sin. This should be evident in the life of your elders. 
Your elders should be willing and able to confess their sin to one another. All the nominees that you're submitting should be one of the things you should see in them. These should be men and women who are quick to confess their sin. Your community groups that you're in should be a place where believers feel safe to confess their sin and be encouraged to walk in the ways of Christ. A church that is too afraid to confess their sin is a church full of pride and not a spirit-filled church. The spirit's role is to convict sin. That's what he does. Then Jesus gives another attribute of the spirit in verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And now it's important for us to keep in mind that these verses are, first of all, instruction for the 12 or now the 11 disciples, and then only secondarily for us. So we read that the Spirit will guide you in all the truth. You have to remember Jesus' audience. Thinking of the disciples in the upper room, that they are the ones who will be led into all truth, this is part of the role in writing Scripture. So sometimes people will misapply this today, and they think, like, the Spirit's going to give, you know, He's going to tell me all the truth. Like, you know, there's no reason for me to study for my test tomorrow because the Spirit is going to tell me all the truth I need to know. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is a unique promise for the disciples that the Spirit will take what He knows from Christ, hears from Christ. He will bring it to mind to complete the work of Christ in their hearts and minds. So in that sense, he will guide them in the truth. And then in verse 14, he glorifies Christ. Sometimes, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, Christians feel like they ignore the Holy Spirit. You know, there's some denominations that don't ever talk about the Holy Spirit. And probably there's some denominations that probably put too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. But sometimes we feel like we can ignore the Holy Spirit because we speak a lot about the Father we speak a lot about the Son, but we don't talk much about the Holy Spirit, do we? The traditional symbol of the Holy Spirit is a dove. So why don't we have, like, doves displayed all around the church? You know, usually we think of decorations in church. You know, I see a cross in the back. I don't think there's anything wrong if there are doves hanging around the church. But it seems like if the Holy Spirit had his choice, he would rather you hang the cross instead of the dove. We see here that the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify, to make much of Christ. The Spirit's work is not to draw attention to himself, but rather to throw a massive spotlight onto Jesus. So when you make much of Christ... When you glorify Jesus, when you go around speaking to others about him, you are not necessarily ignoring the Spirit. In fact, we cannot worship Christ without the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit does not want to be magnified unless his exaltation would point us also to Christ. His mission is to glorify another, which is why the focus of the church is not on a dove, but on the cross which is exactly how the Spirit, I think, would have it. 
In the last half of chapter 16, Jesus informs his followers that trials are inevitable. Is that good news for you this morning? Trials are inevitable. They are going to come. You will have sorrow, but they are temporary, and that you can have peace in the midst of them. He says this in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this, what, what, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world, the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus gives his disciples a heads up to what is lurking around the corner. This truth is so foundational for us. This is the same thing James chapter 1, verse 2 says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, but when you meet trials of various kinds. We're supposed to count it joy? Really? It's been said that when you know that trouble is coming, then you may not be troubled by the trouble. And no one wants to hear that trials are, and troubles are inevitable, but once you know that they're inevitable, it can be in, incredibly like furring because you just can expect them. I think sometimes we live under this false pretense that the Christian life should be easy. I mean, we are sons and daughters of God, right? He is for us, not against us. So shouldn't it work out well for us? But that kind of thinking, all it does, it just reveals to us that we have a poor understanding in our eschatology, in our end of times. You and I have a tendency to live as if the world we are currently in should behave like the world that one day Jesus will make perfectly. And then we live that way, we're going to be constantly frustrated, constantly disappointed. We're always in despair. And Jesus is saying, that's not the expectation you ought to have. You don't live in the new heavens and the new earth just yet. Trials will come. That's his promise to you. Not an easy life. Your life will have trouble. And I don't think Jesus is trying to scare us, but I think he is trying to help us to better understand that we are not in heaven yet. Grasping that trouble is inevitable will help us all to show up on Sunday mornings a little bit better and with our guard down. This means that you don't have to walk in to Huntington Community Church pretending that your life hasn't fallen apart this week or that you have to fake a smile this morning and act like you have it all together. Hey, it's good to see you. How's everything? It's good. And this week's been terrible. Or you're fighting on the way to church, screaming at the kids. You get out, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good to see you. 
Why do we play such a game? Our world is broken. This truth allows you to come in this morning, say, you know what? Life is really hard right now. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I'm a mess. Quite honestly, I I don't see the end in sight. I don't know how it's going to get better. And in some sense, that response, because trials are inevitable, that response should be a normal response. And this allows us to comfort those who have those same afflictions. For those of you who are in community groups, we're going through 2 Corinthians. That's what chapter 1 was talking about. You remember that? Chapter 1, that suffering and trials are inevitable. But that those who have gone through those, that we get to comfort those who have those same afflictions. So trials are inevitable. They're coming. But the text doesn't stop there, does it? That'd be terrible news for us. We also see that trials are temporary. They don't last forever. They may feel like it in the moment. Jesus brilliantly illustrates this point in verse 21 with this example of a woman who is giving birth. I see some babies. I hear babies. I love that noise. It's a beautiful sound. Verse 21, Jesus says, When a woman is giving birth, She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's that's powerful. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, my wife has given birth seven times, and I've watched my wife go through what seems to me a near-death experience seven times. Notice here that Jesus uses the same phrase for a woman giving birth as he uses, as he's been using in John's gospel, as his way of saying, I'm going to face this death on a cross. Here he says, her hour has come. That's the same phrase that he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. And now he has said in the last couple of chapters, he's saying, my hour has come, referring to death on a cross. So ladies, just know, Jesus understands what you go through giving birth He's likened it to death on a cross. Six of the seven labors that Olivia's gone through have been without epidural. It is awful watching her suffer. Now, I'm not saying what I go through that day is worse than what she's going through, okay? Don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying, watching someone that you love go through tremendous pain is awful. I can't do anything to help her. In fact, me getting out of the way is the best thing possible. So watching her suffer, I have learned that when the pain is at its highest, that the suffering is moments from being over. And when the child is born, that pain, it seems like, is completely gone. And for the first time in hours, 
There's a smile across Olivia's face. The tremendous pain and suffering turns into the greatest joy beaming across her face. Talking to that little baby. Hey there, little baby. Like you were just screaming, ready to die. Hey there. Jesus is informing his followers that whatever trial you're going through, it will eventually end. But his point isn't that the pain will just stop. The point is it will be reversed. Just like in labor, the pain just to go away. It's all just said and done. You, you get this baby at the end. Your sorrow isn't just removed. He replaces the sorrow with the birth of joy. So God makes a promise here to redeem the situation, to turn around, to eventually someday set all things right. For these disciples, this was going to happen in just a few days from now. You know, Jesus is going to die several hours from what we're reading. And really, it's not even the way Jews kept track of time. It was three days. For us, it was Friday to Sunday. Their joy would be returned to them when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, obviously, our situation is different from theirs. But there's a general principle here that I think applies to us now. The principle is this, that there's a joy on the other side of suffering that is deeper, that is greater than it would have been without the suffering. But when it comes to suffering, the question that we often ask or that we desperately want the answer to, it's the exact same question that the disciples were asking that very night. Back in verse 18, the disciples asked, what does he mean by a little while? Jesus says you're going to suffer for a little while. And they're like, uh, Jesus can just ask a question here. What do you mean by a little while? But notice Jesus doesn't tell them. And he often doesn't tell us what a little while means. This specific suffering for them, you know, it's three days. But they would go on to face many other trials. But this particular one is just a few days. But everyone's situation is different. For some of you, the suffering you're going through right now may only last a few days. Some of you, it will be months. Some of you will be years. For some of you, your suffering may be a trial you have to endure the rest of your life. But it doesn't change our hope, does it? Someday, whether it's at Christ's second coming or when he takes you home or he gives you relief before that, your trials will end and they will be followed by God-given joy. And listen, if you can grasp that truth this morning, it actually changes your perspective on the life you live. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us live our lives and focus our lives on the present, you know, what we're, what we're facing right now. It's like when you smash your thumb, the only thing you can think about is your thumb. 
but nothing will transform your life like creating this longing and hope for the glory in heaven. When we're suffering, we must make certain that we think of Christ. We must have our eyes fixed on Jesus if we want to push through the trial. And Jesus begins to wrap up his farewell discourse. Listen to the certainty in which he speaks in verse 32 to these disciples. Verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So he's talking about how just a few hours, you know, they're all like, Jesus, we will follow you. But once he gets arrested, they all peace out. They leave. But Jesus is like, you, even though you leave, I'm not alone. The Father's still with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How is Jesus able to give you peace? His answer is, because I am the only one who's overcome the world. The word overcome here, it can also be translated as conquer. I don't know if some of your versions may have conquer. Jesus could have easily, or John could have easily written, um, I have conquered the world. The very thing that you feel conquered by in your suffering the very thing you can't, I say can't, deal with, the very thing that's holding you down, the very thing that's crushing you, Jesus looks at you and he says, I have conquered. Jesus beat the world through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. He reigns supreme over everything in this world, even the thing that you're suffering from today. He reigns supreme over it. And he works all things, Roman 8 tells us, for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, you may be here this morning and you may know Christ and feel his peace. And I would just encourage you to keep clinging to that hope. That your suffering, it's It's temporary. But I'm guessing there are some here this morning who may not know Christ. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're not suffering. Maybe life is going really well for you. But I can promise you this, that at some point, suffering will come to you even if you don't know Christ today. And when that suffering comes in that moment, where will you turn? The world we're in is so broken because of sin. That's the reason the world doesn't work rightly. That's the reason suffering happens. So the only way you're going to beat the world is if you have someone who's dealt with the problem of sin, and the only person who's dealt with the problem of sin is our Lord Jesus Christ, which he is the only source, the only hope for our peace. You can be sure that trials are coming, but those trials are temporary. They don't last forever. And there's joy awaiting for you on the other side of the suffering. And even in the midst of suffering, you can find peace because Jesus 
He has overcome. Let's pray as the band comes back to lead us. Lord Jesus, we know that you have conquered, that you have overcome. But Lord, some of us this morning feel like we have been conquered. Like there's something, some suffering, some emotion that's just overcoming us. I pray that you remind us of this passage, that you have overcome the world, which means all the things in it you have destroyed, you have defeated. We know that we can have peace even in the midst of sufferings. May we be reminded of James' encouragement to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We know that you're doing a work through those. So, Lord, I pray that we would cling to you, that we would not fall away through these difficult times of suffering and trials, persecution. Instead of running from you, may we run to you this morning. But may this truth this morning, that trials will come, may that help us just to be transparent and honest with each other that maybe we're not doing that well. Maybe we need to just share that with someone and may we be um, able to encourage those who are suffering. So Lord, I pray that you would that you would keep your promises here. That the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin, lead us to righteousness, because we know that you will judge us. So may we be a church that confesses. May we be a spirit-filled church this morning. We pray all of this in the name that the Holy Spirit wants to make much of, the name of Jesus Christ. We give all glory to him. Amen.